So, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 11. The 11th chapter of Acts. Uh, it's good to be back. Laura and I were gone during the week this week. We were here last Sunday, but gone in the middle of the week. We were uh, at a conference in San Diego, California. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were. Yeah. It's good, it's good to be back, even though we left... 68 and brilliantly sunny and a Pacific breeze constantly, but hey, it's good to be back in Auburn, right? But we're in Acts. I really enjoyed this study in Acts. Um, uh, it's, it's not always the easiest. It's a fascinating book. It's not always the easiest to teach through, um, especially when compared to one of the epistles of Paul or Peter or John, where in an epistle the teaching is always just so already neatly laid out for you. They're already making the argument for you. You just got to present it. But Acts is different because so much of it comes in story form. And so like any, any narrative, and there's a lot of narrative in the Bible, you, you have to glean the truth from the events um, rather than a carefully crafted argument. But we've come across some incredible stories. So we want to just review just a little bit because even though we were here last week at the Doctrine of Christ conference, and so we've been away from Acts for a couple of weeks, We've come across, we're in 11 this morning, we've come across some incredible stories and just seen example after example of how the Lord was mightily working uh, just really in amazing ways in the church in Jerusalem. We saw the the Holy Spirit fall at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, just as Jesus had promised. He said, wait here for a few days and I'll pour out the Holy Spirit. And, And the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and the believers were empowered and emboldened to bear witness to Christ, again, just like Jesus had said, you'll be, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Uh, and being filled with the Spirit, filled with boldness and, and, and power, we saw them chapter after chapter stand firm in persecution like we've never experienced before. Stephen being willing to give his life for Christ, for the truth of the gospel, bearing bold witness even though he knew he was about to die. And instead of Stephen's martyrdom causing the, the other believers to go into hiding in fear. Uh, Acts tells us that, that the Lord increased their boldness all the more, such that even when the persecution that came out of Stephen's martyrdom, when it got so, so unbearable that they had to leave their homes, leave Jerusalem altogether, even where they fled, they continued preaching the gospel that started the persecution in the first place. The reason they were fleeing, they were still preaching that gospel. Um, we've seen uh, in Acts chapter uh, 9, we saw the most notorious persecutor of the church uh, and murderer and imprisoner of those who confess faith, confess faith in Christ. We saw him come trembling in faith to Christ. That's, a, that's amazing. In uh, a blinding light, um, they're on the Damascus Road. And just think about why he was on the Damascus Road, because he was headed there with letters from the authorities giving him permission to to imprison and even do worse to any Christians he found there in Damascus. That's how he was spending his days. You think about that. You wake up in the morning, what do you want to be about that day? That's what he was about. He went out of his way to get letters of, 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 of permission to go from town to town to go, and here's how, here's how uh, Acts 8 described it, Acts 8, 3. 
But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. You just, just put yourself there. I mean, house after house dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Ravaging the church. Dragging them off. That's the one who came trembling in faith to Christ. And he became equally as zealous to take the gospel where it had not gone and make converts to Christ rather than imprison and kill them. So Acts has already been a full book. We've seen miracles, healings, um, and signs and wonders. We've mentioned a few times, uh, and, and we, we need to have this in our mind because you'll see more as the, as the book goes on. When you see miracles performed in Acts, or they're, they're called signs and wonders. So they're never performed for their own sake. Miracles happen in Acts for a very strategic purpose. A miracle is performed. It's not so that Paul is exalted. It's not so that Peter is exalted. It happens uh, through their ministry, but in order to grab people's attention, draw a crowd, and provide a forum for the word of the gospel to go forth. The, so don't ever be, don't ever be deceived and, 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 or think that in a chapter of Acts, that the miracle is the, is the central thing. The, the miracle, as amazing as it is, is always in service to what comes next, which is always the preaching of the gospel. That's always, it, it almost follows that, that same pattern um, every time you see it. Miracles, signs and wonders, uh, they happen, it draws a crowd, some Peter or whoever stands, and they preach and people believe, and a church is started. Um, why did they do it that way in Acts? Why do we not see it regularly happening now? Why was it happening in Acts? And it's not just when, when we go on Alperin's campus, why are we not just performing miracles and, and crowds drawing? What's the difference? Well, again, the, the, it goes back to what I just said. Even in Acts, the, the focus was not on the miracle, but on the gospel message. And it was attended with miracles then because if you think about it, this was a new thing happening in the history of the world. The, Paul calls the coming of Christ the fullness of time. Right? So this is a, this is a remarkably unique time. And, and dramatic shifts are taking place in the history of salvation. Prophecies, 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 and now he has come. And to... And, and to so so you, you, it, it, it makes total sense that when this totally unique time has now come upon the scene to grab people's attention and to lend authority to this brand new newly preached message um, it's attended with signs and wonders to to a grab attention and lend credibility but once the once the gospel is now firmly rooted in a place it's it, it you know it's no longer necessary to attend it with uh with miracles we go by faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ so it's on us to take the gospel now so anyway, all I, I say all that to say this. One of my favorite things about Acts um, is that even with all the extraordinary things going on on seemingly every chapter, the focus is still always on the simple truths of the gospel and, and how that gospel was moving out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. I think our chapter today gives us a good chance to see that. If you're open to Acts 11, the first half of the chapter is going to be essentially retelling the story of the last chapter, um, chapter 10, when 
uh, Peter went and preached to Cornelius and his family. And then the latter half of the chapter is going to introduce us to this church in Antioch, which is, we will see in later chapters, a great missionary-sending church where they were first called Christians. So we're going to read the chapter, and then as we read it, I want to think about uh, from it three great truths of salvation. Uh, three great truths of salvation. We'll take a closer look at it. I hope we're not going to say anything, perhaps, that you've not heard before. That's going to be the aim uh, today. All right, so let's read it, beginning in verse, verse 1. We'll read all the way through. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began to explain it to them in order, uh, and he said, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for... Nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again to heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with him, making no distinction. Catch those words. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or or the Greeks, also preaching the the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of, of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. Uh, This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. It is un- unchanging. Our, um, our feelings come and go. Um, our way of seeing things are swayed by the culture around us. We come back to this word and it's unchanging. And it's always there and it's always true. The truth is, uh, as Jude put it, once for all delivered to the saints. And this is your holy word. And uh, it's our desire to, to submit our, ourselves to it. For we know it's you speaking to us through it. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Uh, and, and minds to understand what we see. Give us hearts to embrace and not just know it, but to love the truth that we come across. To embrace it and love it. And finally, wills to obey whatever it calls us to do. And Father, give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So here are the simple gospel truths that I think just sort of just leap off the page here from this chapter, which is a, just really a, a transitional type chapter. It's a, it, it's, it's a transitioning from, yeah, what's, what's come before into, into the new ministry of Paul, sort of transitioning from Peter over to Paul. So it's not like anything really remarkable happens in this chapter. It's really just a, a, a summary type chapter. So here are the gospel truths that I think just sort of leap off the page here. First of all, salvation is without distinction. Salvation is without distinction. We'll see this, and I, told, I even called attention to it when I read in the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 18, where he's recounting the events of chapter 10. Salvation is without distinction. This is important. And secondly, salvation is a work of God. I think it's something that we see very clearly uh, in, in one particular verse. Uh, but said very forthrightly in the middle of the chapter. And then third, salvation is demonstrated in perseverance. I think we, this, is a, this is a theme that kind of leaps off the page in the latter half of the chapter when they're in Antioch. Um, so e- each one of those truths, I hope, is not new to you. And if it is, that's fine. It's great hearing it for the first time, but for most of us in this room, I don't think there's anything that's on there that you haven't thought, thought about before, maybe thought about many times. But here's the thing I want to drill into your head, that Scripture always makes the most important truths the clearest and the most often repeated. Scripture always makes the most important truths the clearest and the most often repeated. And that ought to teach you something else, that when you are in church and you see that the sermon is going to be about something that you've heard about, heard a bunch of times, or you wake up in the morning and the next chapter in your Bible reading plan is a chapter that you've read a thousand times and you're prone to just sort of move quickly past it or or not think about it deeply just because you feel like you already know these things, knowing that, that the the, the most important things are the clearest and most often repeated. When you come across something or you hear something that you've heard a thousand times, that's precisely when the alarm needs to go up and you need to listen all the more carefully and not to just tune it out because you've heard it a bunch. Um, knowing that there's a good design in that. And so, so it's, it's, like, it's like Peter said in, in 2 Peter uh, 1 when he told his readers, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things or these qualities 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So he's about to write a letter to his readers, and he knows before he ever... This is in the first chapter, first few verses. He knows that what he's about to say, he's not going to say anything that they don't already know. He's going to say, you already know this. And not only you just know it, not only that you've heard it, you're established in what I'm about to say. I still think it right, he says, as long as I've got breath in my lungs, to stir you up by reminding you of the things that you already know. That's the whole point. So that being said, that's, I think that's one of the aims of chapter 11 and our, our aim this morning. To be stirred up, to be reminded of things that we already know. Alright, so let's think first about salvation is without distinction. Like I said earlier, I think we see this in the first half of the chapter when he's recounting um, the story of the last chapter of Peter and Cornelius and the gospel coming to the Gentiles for the first time. That's what we thought about two weeks ago. Remember who Cornelius was. Cornelius was a, a Roman soldier, a centurion, a high-ranking Roman uh, soldier, but he was a Gentile. He, yes, had come into contact with the Jewish faith and was a godly man. He's called a God-fearer. He prayed at, at the, the times that Jews prayed. He gave alms like the Jews gave alms, but he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. Uh, and, and, and he yes, it says he feared God, but for all of his devotion to what he did know, he didn't know Christ. He didn't know the final word from the Lord. Um, and so the Lord sent Peter um, to tell him about Christ, and Cornelius believed and his whole family believed. And remember, this is, I mean, I'm just summarizing because it's just a summary and we read it. Remember how in, in the last chapter in Acts 10, that when, when all this happened, all this was surprising to Peter as well. I mean, you know, because uh, he recounts it, he says, I, I, I didn't just do this on a whim. I mean, I was kind of surprised myself. I saw a vision, and then the sheet came down with all the animals on it, and he said, rise, kill, and eat. And I was like, by no means. I mean, this was, this was uh, I couldn't do that. All these things are forbidden by the Old Testament. I, I couldn't do this. And the Lord told him, don't call unclean or common what I've made clean. And long story short, this vision had its deepest significance, not in what kind of foods can you eat, but in the, in, in, uh, but in the salvation opening to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. So when you come to chapter 11, Peter, you see, wasn't the only one who was surprised by this. Look at verse 1 again. Now, the apostles who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of the Lord, or the word of God. So what was their response? Verse 2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Criticized him. Criticized him. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. They were angry at Peter um, for even speaking to them, let alone sharing a meal with them and sharing Christ with them. That was, their, that was their default position. So apparently these believers in Jerusalem, since Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, apparently these were people in Jerusalem who had professed faith in Christ out of Judaism, but there was a, a, a group of them that he calls the circumcision party here who were still zealous for the law of Moses and still zealous for Jewish customs. They had professed faith in Christ, but they really hadn't fully left Judaism. So they were offended. They were offended that Peter would 
break custom and go eat with them, with Gentiles, and share with them and have the temerity uh, to rejoice with them when they profess faith in Christ without first teaching them the Jewish way of things and requiring them in some way to become Jewish first. This isn't completely surprising because even in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, it was prophesied that, that the Gentiles would be saved. It's not just the Jews. This is an entirely new um, thing in the New Testament that, that, that you would, oh, the Gentiles. It wouldn't be out of the blue. I mean, all through the Old Testament, it's prophesied that it wouldn't just be for the Jews, but the nations would come. That's the promise to Abraham himself. You know, uh, Abraham is, is, is told that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. He's told that you will be the father of many nations. But, so the prophets also prophesied this. But the assumption was not, so that, that even from the early days, they knew that the, that the salvation was not just going to be for the Jews, but it would be for the Gentiles too at some point. But the, the assumption at that time was not that the Jews would be going to the Gentiles, but the Gentiles would be coming to them. You see that? It's, it's, it's like there's a... It's like the Old Testament is, is... The assumption is one way. It's not that God was revealing this. This was the assumption that, that, that the Gentiles would be coming to them. And it's in the New Testament that you say, oh, it's not that they're going to come to us. We're going to them. We're going to them. Right? Um, and, but see, what, the, what does that assumption do? If they thought, yeah, we don't have a problem that the Gentiles are going to be saved, but the assumption is not that we're going to go to them, but they're going to come to us. What does that kind of assumption bring with it? Well, if they're going to come to us, they're going to come to our way of things. They're going to come to our, our Jewish way of things. When Jesus had said in Acts 1.8 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, meaning to the Gentiles as well, many of them probably heard that and believed that, but still heard it through the lens of assumptions long before formed. That, that, uh, that yeah, it's going to go to the ends of the earth, but the ends of the earth are going to be coming to us, right? And when God didn't act according to their assumptions, and when Peter then didn't act according to their assumptions, they didn't like it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. They couldn't rejoice in things they should have rejoiced in. This would, this would be something that the church dealt with in this way, in this particular way, for a while. When, you, when we come to Acts 15 uh, in, in the spring, they're still going to be arguing that the Gentiles who came to faith in Christ needed to get circumcised, needed to obey uh, the law. In other words, to come to Christ, you had to become a Jew like them. That was the prevailing viewpoint then. That is still a tendency in some form or fashion, in some form or fashion, still with us today. It's a very real thing. We are tempted in ways that we may not even be aware. They may be very deeply held um, assumptions hidden deep in our heart. That if someone else to, wants to come to Christ, they need to look like us. If someone else wants to, uh, if, before I believe that someone else is genuinely saved, they need to look like us. 
Someone to fit into our fellowship. They need to look like us. I don't have any doubt in my mind that part of their anger at Peter for eating with and sharing the gospel with Gentiles, yes, in their minds it was motivated by their understanding the Bible as misguided as it was, but it was also in part motivated by prejudice. And that's something that we need to be mindful of ourselves. We need to be able to distinguish in our own hearts the difference between Scripture and our own assumptions, between Scripture and our own um, preferences. Peter tries to put that to rest by telling them, again, the vision that God had given him and how clearly God had told him that the door had opened to the Gentiles and it it was not just that the Gentiles should come to Peter, but Peter should go to the Gentiles. And that both Jew and Gentile become one new man in Christ. That's the point. It's not that, it's not that Gentiles, Gentiles don't become Jews and Jews don't become Gentiles. Both become one new man in Christ. That's the point. Peter was making it clear to them. Uh, and he says so in verse 17 that God was working in the Gentiles in the same way that He was working in the Jews. He says in verse 17... If then God gave the the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in His way? And He he said, I don't have it on the screen, but it's it's in verse 12. Spirit told me to go with Him, making no distinction. So we don't decide. We don't decide. Or we don't prejudge who is acceptable and who is not. We don't... God works in whomever He wills. Without distinction. And thankfully they understood what Paul was saying. In verse 18 it says they, they fell silent. And they glorified God. Maybe in awe. Maybe in shame. But they glorified God for His grace. <clears throat> Salvation is without distinction. Yeah. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The scripture says He came to save people from Every tribe and nation and tongue and background and whatever. There's the second truth we see in the chapter. And that is salvation is the work of God. Yeah, salvation is without distinction. God saves people that look like you and me. And He saves people who look very much unlike you and me. But the common denominator between both of those extremes is that God saves them. God saves them. This chapter affirms in clear terms that whoever comes to faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile, comes by the powerful working of God. Salvation is a, is a work of God. That's, the, you, uh, the, that's the, the central verse in the book of Jonah. You know, the, the very center, the very, it's crazy, the very center of the book of Jonah is the verse that says salvation is from the Lord. That's and that's, that's, a, that's a, a theme taught throughout the Bible. Salvation is a work of God. We saw that already ex, uh, demonstrated in God saving Saul, Paul, back in chapter 9. We see it here in, in chapter 11, albeit, albeit in a slightly less dramatic fashion. How? Look specifically at verse 18 again. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. That leads to life. God has granted repentance that leads to life. So that that one verse teaches two 
very basic gospel truths. One is that it is repentance that leads to life. We don't just uh, come to Christ in faith, but faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin of conversion. You, don't come, you cannot come to Christ without repenting of your sins. But the other truth is that it is God who grants repentance. It's not just that repentance is necessary to be saved. God is the one who grants repentance. Then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. This isn't the only place we see this in Scripture. Just one example. Paul would later tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, when he's instructing him as, as, in, in the work of being a pastor. Paul tells Timothy, And the Lord's servant, the pastor, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Genuine heart repentance is, is not something that we can just conjure up in our own hearts. Because what is repentance? And what you've you got to ask yourself two questions. What is repentance? And what is the basic storyline of the Bible that tells you what is our natural heart posture toward it? What is repentance? Repentance is, at, at the very least, it's initially assigning guilt and blame to yourself for the actions that you took. That's what repentance is. It's, it's, it's assigning blame to yourself. It's not putting it off on anything else. I did it, and I'm... I, I, I turn away from it. It's me. I did it. None of us naturally does that. I mean, that's the whole storyline of the Bible. In the very chapter that sin enters into the world, what do Adam and Eve do? When God confronts them with what they have done, what do they do? They blame others. The woman you made, she made me do it. The serpent, he made me do it. Our, our, and, 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 and early in Romans chapter 3, he says, nobody is seeking after God. All have turned aside, quoting the Old Testament. So that kind of genuine heart repentance is something that our natural heart is allergic to. We don't want to do it. Right? But God, so if it happens to anybody, it's because God has granted that honest repentance in our hearts. We see it here in Acts. Look back at verse 18. It's, it's, notice carefully that it's not that they were astonished that the Gentiles repented. They, they, they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God saying, the Gentiles repented. That's not what they say. It's not that they were just astonished that the, that the Gentiles repented, but that God had granted repentance to them. We know this to be true. We know it to be true in our own hearts. I mean, we know it intuitively. That's why we pray to God for people we want to be, that we want to see saved. That's why we pray to Him, saying, save so-and-so. People pray what they really believe. And if, if, if God is, the, is not the one who granted it, then why pray to Him and ask Him to do the very thing He doesn't do? Right? But He does do it, and we know it. And we know that's a good thing. 
We know that God is the one who works in hearts. We've seen His, and we've seen, combine that. That's not a stifling thing. That's a beautiful thing when you combine it with the truth we've already seen, that He works without distinction. So He works without distinction. Salvation is a work of God. And the last point is simply this. Salvation is demonstrated in perseverance. Let's think about that quickly. As the persecuted believers in Jerusalem were scattered from their homes, like we said earlier, they went about preaching Jesus. And verse 21 tells us that the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. But notice though, that the point I want to make here is notice that there's not an exclamation point there and the chapter ends and we move on to the next thing. No. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So what was their immediate reaction? Let's send Barnabas to them to disciple them. Let's send Barnabas to them to teach them. Because believing and turning to the Lord is the beginning of the road, not the end of the road. Right? They didn't expect them to make it on their own, so they sent Barnabas to encourage them. And what what did Barnabas tell them in verse 23? When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So we just said, salvation is is a work of God. It's it's all of His grace. When I stand before God, I'm not going to be able to say, nor will I want to, to say I did any of it. Right? It is all of His grace from beginning to end. And it's all His work in me. Not just on the front end, but all the way through. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. But here, by the grace of God, we are exhorted to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, or as the NIV puts it, with all their hearts. So our perseverance is, is the fruit of genuine saving faith in us. And we see that one way, one important way, and I'll let you talk about it around your tables in just a minute, one important way that they strove to to stay in the way faithfully uh, is in verse 26. Look there. They met together with Paul and Barnabas. um, And for a whole year, they they met together with them. They, they They did not neglect meeting together. They did not neglect meeting together for the purpose of devoting themselves to the teaching. What do we believe? And being... uh, formally discipled in in the way of Christ. Meeting together with the local church is indispensably important for our faithful perseverance to the very end. I'll say it again. Meeting together regularly with the local church is indispensably important for your faithful perseverance to the end in Christ. It is now, and it will be your whole life. So when you graduate from this place, and you move off somewhere, your first order of business is, where is a local church that is preaching the gospel and plant both of your feet in that church? That's your first order of business. Because I can promise you, when you leave here and you're surrounded by a bunch of like-minded 
brothers and sisters in Christ, and you move off to a place where you don't know anybody, and the, the stresses and the pressures of jobs and bills and life happen, if you're not firmly planted in a local church, you will drift away. I'm telling you, don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Well, interestingly, it's noted in that verse that in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And we know from history that this wasn't a compliment to them. It was a, it was a term of derision. I mean, if you think about it, the rest of the scriptures bear that out. Just one example, like in Peter, in, in um, 1 Peter 4.16, he tells, he tells the believers in that verse not to be ashamed. It's not on the screen, but 1 Peter 4.16, he tells them not to be ashamed if they suffer as a Christian. And he goes on to say, let them glorify God in that name. So these believers knew that, in Acts 11, knew that Christ had opened a door for, for uh, people from every background to be saved, not by becoming a Jew or the Jews having begun Gentiles, but both becoming one new man in Christ. And that salvation was all the more precious to them because they knew not only that, but that, that the change that they had experienced in their heart toward Christ was not their own doing. It was the gift of God to them. So they were zealous to honor Christ and to persevere in faith to Him. And people noticed, and some didn't like it, and some did. They were proud to wear the name of Christian. So let's glorify God in that name. Let's pray.